Good morning, church. My name's Andrew, and I'm really excited to study God's Word together. Let's start with the story of a failed treasure hunt. In 1939, in Hollywood, California, Henry Jones began to dig for a legendary lost treasure. Buried 75 years earlier, the location of this treasure had remained a mystery. But with the help of a metal detector, Jones thought he had found it, buried under a parking lot of a popular concert venue in Hollywood. So he started to dig. He even brought in a massive team to help. Since this was Hollywood, California, the media caught wind of the story. Hundreds came to watch the spectacle. Vendors sold concessions. Hollywood tour buses stopped by to look in on the quest. Jones dug for 24 days. He shoveled more than 100 tons of dirt. And in the end, he found nothing. Jones sincerely sought the treasure but he failed to find it. And to this day, the location remains a mystery. Now, most of us probably don't search for buried treasure, but all of us are searching for something elusive. It's a deeper treasure all of our hearts desire. We could call it happiness or fulfillment, but for today, we'll call it contentment. True, deep, lasting contentment. We all look for it in a variety of people, places, and pursuits, but we still struggle to find the contentment our hearts long for. We're in week four of a series called The Power of Small. Today, I wanna look at a story of a failed treasure hunt from the Gospels. We'll be in Mark 10, 17 to 31. You can turn there in your Bibles or access the scripture on the YouVersion Bible app or at efree.org slash Bible. Now, some Bibles label this section of scripture the account of the rich young ruler, but I'd like to call it the failed quest of a wealthy treasure seeker. The conversation we discover here between Jesus and this man contains less than 100 words, and it takes about a minute to read. It was a small encounter, but a powerful one. In it, we see two truths that will help us in our search for the treasure of true contentment. We'll see that we find true contentment in ultimate devotion to Jesus and through Jesus' ultimate devotion to us. Let's pray and we'll dive in. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through the truths in this passage. Please use it to help build your kingdom in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our schools, and in our neighborhoods. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with the first part of our passage. In Mark 10, 17, it says this, as Jesus was starting out, on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here we are introduced to our treasure hunter. Note his eagerness. He runs up to Jesus and he kneels down before him. Also note the question he asks Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Think about what this question reveals about his heart. We will see later that this man has tremendous wealth and that he is a good, upright, and moral man. Yet deep in his heart, there is a longing that his wealth and his goodness have not satisfied. He is searching for some treasure that his heart lacks, and he seeks Jesus for an answer. 
Let's continue and see how Jesus responds. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now, why did Jesus give this man a laundry list of commands instead of just telling him to believe the gospel? It's likely that this man was not ready to accept the terms of the gospel. Think about what he says. He claims to have kept all these commands since he was young, and he may have followed all the rules, at least externally, but which of us could honestly say that we have kept all of these commands since we were young? I don't think any of us, myself included, could accurately make this claim. That being said, I don't think this man is trying to deceive Jesus, but I think he has deceived himself. He sees himself, as many of us do, as basically good, upright, and a moral person. In fact, he may have assumed he was already good enough to earn eternal life and was looking to Jesus to validate this assumption. Jesus wants this man to see himself as he truly is, as someone who's sinful, broken, desperately in need of a savior. So Jesus challenges some of his assumptions. First, he asks a question, why do you call me good? Now, Jesus isn't denying his own goodness. He's simply asking a thought-provoking question designed to get this man thinking about his assumptions. One author puts it this way, the question is to help Jesus understand the heart and mind of this young man. And even more, its purpose is to help the young man understand his own heart and mind. Isn't it interesting that Jesus responds initially, not with an answer, but with a question? There's a brief takeaway for us here. When it comes to helping others know Jesus, sometimes a question is more powerful than an answer. Are we intentional in the questions we ask others? Do we follow the wisdom that Jesus models? Well, in this case, Jesus doesn't leave this man hanging. Jesus answers him directly and says, only God is truly good. By implication, you and I and the man in this passage are not good. Even if externally, we may seem so to others, and internally, we may deceive our hearts into thinking that we are. Jesus' teaching challenges the Jewish culture of this man, and it challenges our culture as well. Most of our culture assume mankind is basically good. We refer to people we know by saying, he's a good guy, and we wonder why bad things happen to good people. <laughs> the other day, I even heard a story about a good guy discount. A reporter found a surprising way to save money. When making a purchase at a store, he would approach a cashier and say, hey, I'm a good guy, you're a good guy. Any chance we could do a good guy discount on this? Sometimes the cashier would laugh and decline, but to his surprise, about one in four times, the cashiers would give him a 10 to 20% discount. Now, I'm not suggesting you try this the next time you buy groceries. I'm just noting that like the man in this story, we tend to assume that we are basically good. Jesus's answer is designed to help this man wrestle with this assumption. Is he truly good? good enough to earn eternal life? 
we should note again that despite his self-proclaimed goodness, this man still sought an answer to his question. Underneath the exterior, his heart was not yet content. Let's see what happens next, for this is an important moment in this passage. Mark 10 verse 20 says, Jesus looked at him and felt genuine love for him. Jesus makes eye contact with this self-righteous seeker. The word here means that Jesus looked at him with his mind. Jesus sees him truly and deeply. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to make eye contact with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who sees and knows all? I remember a powerful moment of eye contact from my own life. One day, I was driving home from graduate school, and for a brief moment, I took my eyes off the road. I didn't see the car in front of me had stopped to turn until the last moment. I slammed on my brakes and I swerved, but it was too late. I hit the turning car, skidded off the road, and slammed into a tree. Now, miraculously, everyone was okay, but I was very fortunate. The car in front of me had two kids in the back seat, and I did a lot of damage to both of our cars. I wasn't far from home, so I called my dad, and he rushed to the accident. I'll never forget the look in his eyes when he saw what had happened. It wasn't a look of condemnation or shame, even though I had clearly made a costly mistake. It was a look of love and grace. He told me that he loved me and he was so glad I was okay. But it was the way he looked at me that powerfully communicated his love. Let me ask you to try something. Close your eyes for a moment. Wherever you are at, close your eyes and put yourself in the shoes of the man in this story. Imagine that you are talking with Jesus. And then at a dramatic moment in the conversation, he makes eye contact with you. He looks at you intently. What does Jesus see in your eyes? And what does he see in your heart? What treasures do you seek? As I studied this passage, I tried imagining looking into the eyes of Jesus. And more often than not, I had to lower my gaze. I knew that Jesus saw my sin, my motivations, and my heart. It felt vulnerable to be truly seen and known by Jesus. But our text says, Jesus looked at him and loved him with a genuine love. Friends, Jesus sees our hearts truly, and yet he loves us deeply. Now, note carefully what happens next. Because in love, Jesus speaks the truth that this man desperately needs to hear. It continues in Mark 10, 21. There is still one thing you haven't done, Jesus told him. The Greek text literally reads one thing you lack. This word lack means to fail to reach a goal or simply to fall short. It's the same word used in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isn't that interesting? Jesus looked deeply at a man who thought at the very core of his being that he was good. And he honestly, lovingly told him the truth. You fall short. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. 
Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. They do have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Now, this man possessed great wealth. And, and look closely at what Jesus asked him to do. He tells him to sell not just some, but all of his possessions. This is a difficult request. But note what else Jesus asked. He invites the man to follow him. And this is the language of discipleship. This is nothing short of a call to become Jesus's disciple, not one of the 12, but a disciple nonetheless. It's a chance to be with Jesus, the one who sees him truly and loves him deeply. But with sadness in his heart, he walks away. Friends, we see a really powerful truth about contentment here in Jesus's invitation. We find true contentment in ultimate devotion to Jesus. We find true contentment in ultimate devotion to Jesus. This is what our wealthy treasure seeker misses, that we're most content when we're most surrendered to Christ. Even in the most challenging times, true contentment is found in following Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, author, and devoted disciple of Jesus who lived in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler. With war looming on the horizon, Bonhoeffer's friends brought him to America to protect him. But two months before the war began, Bonhoeffer made the bold decision to return to Germany. During the war, Bonhoeffer faithfully served Jesus in the church with passionate devotion. But as a friend of the true church, he became an enemy of the Nazi regime. He was imprisoned in a concentration camp, tried for treason, and sentenced to die. Bonhoeffer's final act was to lead a short worship service for his fellow prisoners, many of whom he had shepherded towards a relationship with Christ. When the service was finished, he was led to the execution ground and was hanged. A fellow prisoner who saw what happened said this of his death, I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. He died fully devoted to Jesus. Before his death, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He called the church to show ultimate devotion to Jesus by embracing a concept he called costly grace. Here's a summary of his message. Costly grace is the grace of Christian discipleship. It is costly because it calls us to follow. It is costly because it costs our very lives but it is grace because although it cost our life, it is also the source of the only true and complete life. Don't miss the last line of that quote, the source of the only true and complete life. Wherever our devotion to Jesus leads us, it leads ultimately to contentment. Bodhoeffer believed this and it shaped the way that he lived and died. Let's think for a moment about our own lives. Living with ultimate devotion for Jesus may look less dramatic for us. In our context, ultimate devotion might be for our neighbors or living for Jesus in the context of our schools, our workplaces. 
Maybe it's honoring Jesus in our parenting or where we serve as volunteers or even serving in the context of the church. But whether the stage is large or small, whether the moment is historic or seemingly insignificant, Jesus calls us to live with devotion for him. Returning for a moment to our passage, let's address a specific question. Jesus tells this man to sell all his possessions. Does Christ call us to do the same? The point of this passage isn't about the level of wealth or poverty we should attain. It's about removing obstacles that keep us from fully surrendering to Jesus. For this man, his wealth stood in the way. Thus, Jesus calls him to sell it all. For other individuals he encounters, Jesus makes different demands. He told Nicodemus to be born again and to believe. And he told his disciples to leave their boats and their nets. He told a woman caught in adultery that he did not condemn her, but told her to leave her life of sin. The specific call is often different, but the principle is the same. Jesus calls for ultimate devotion in the hearts of his followers. We should be especially cautious and careful and wise with worldly wealth because of the powerful pull that it can have on our hearts. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says this, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Friends, take a moment and reflect. What do you need to abandon to follow Jesus fully? What treasure do you cling to that keeps you from fully following the Lord? Now, in the next part of our passage, Jesus shares a fascinating debrief with his disciples about this conversation. And there's something important here for us to see connected to our search for contentment. So let's continue. In verse 23, it says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world could be saved, they asked. Jesus uses a memorable analogy to describe how difficult it is for the, the rich in wealth or the rich in goodness to enter the kingdom of God. A camel was the largest animal known in that context. And the eye of a needle is one of the smallest openings imaginable. Jesus is a master at memorable imagery. And what he says stuns his disciples. They, like the rest of their Jewish culture, viewed wealth as a sign of divine favor. If even the wealthy cannot be saved, who can? If even the very good are not good enough, who has any hope at all? Jesus answers their question. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. 
Jesus looks intently at his disciples. And this is the exact same word used earlier in the passage when Jesus looks intently at the rich ruler. He makes eye contact with them. He wants them to grasp the importance of what he says. How is it possible for the wealthy and the poor, the good and the wicked, for you and for me to be saved? It's possible with God. It's possible through Christ. Just a few verses later, here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples the lengths he will go to make salvation possible. He tells them that he will go to Jerusalem. He will be betrayed, mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. And then three days later, he will rise. And this is how it is possible to be saved. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Our sins separate us from God, but Jesus paid the penalty for our sins through his death. His death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus possessed true wealth, true goodness, and true treasure in heaven, but he gave it all up for me and for you and for a wealthy man who asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life. Remember earlier in our passage when Jesus looked at the man with genuine love? Here we see that Jesus did not simply look at the man with love. He loved him to the full. He loved him even though it cost him his life. Friends, to be loved like that, that's the treasure our hearts truly seek. When we know that kind of love, our hearts rest content. Here, with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in view, we see a powerful second principle about contentment. First, we saw that we find contentment and devotion to Jesus. And here we see that we find true contentment through Jesus's ultimate devotion to us. We find true contentment through Jesus's ultimate devotion to us. We see this devotion in a number of beautiful ways in scripture, but we see it most powerfully on the cross. Think of all the treasures we find through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We find the forgiveness of sins. We find peace for a guilty conscience. We find rest for our exhausted souls. We find freedom from our past and hope for our future. We look forward to eternal life with God. Through the cross, we find that we have value, that we are deeply and truly loved. Have you found this treasure? Have you trusted in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Maybe today is a chance for you to trust Christ for the first time. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and you simply need to be reminded to keep trusting in the cross. There's one final, very brief section in our passage. And here we see how much the disciples still have to learn. Right now, in this moment, they don't yet see all that Jesus will do. And they're still focused on earthly rewards. Thus, Peter, always the one to speak his mind, asked Jesus a final question. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and the good news will receive now 
and return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem to be least important now will be the greatest then. It's almost as if Peter falls into the same trap as the rich ruler. He is focused on what he and the disciples have done for Jesus. And he's focused on a worldly reward. It's almost as if Peter says, Jesus, we've left everything. We did what he didn't. What then will we earn? Jesus' response is fascinating. Jesus says that anyone who forsakes homes or family for Jesus will receive a staggering reward, 100 times as much. Is Jesus teaching some kind of prosperity gospel? Not at all. Note that Jesus also says we will receive persecutions. Jesus is realistic about his portrayal of the life of discipleship. It involves blessing and suffering, gain and loss, joy and sorrow. But think about what we gain when we follow Jesus. Yes, there will be suffering and persecution, but we join a community unlike any other on earth, the church. Should we lose our hopes, we belong to a community of hundreds who would gladly take us in. And we have hundreds of family members, brothers and sisters in Christ, who will walk with us through our sweetest joys and our greatest sorrows. That is a special thing to be a part of, friends. Are we doing that well as a church? Are we protecting and encouraging each other? As we draw near the end of today's message, I'd like to make one final application. One of our goals for this series, The Power of Small, was to grow in the way we love and engage with our neighbors, especially those who don't know Jesus. So far, we've seen the power of a small interruption, a small touch, and a small step. And man, if you've missed any of those messages, I'd encourage you to go back and watch them. In applying today's passage, let's think about the power of a small moment where we speak the truth in love. Reflect for a minute on the way Jesus engages with the rich young ruler. He loves him deeply. And because of this, he is willing to speak the truth he desperately needs to hear. Jesus challenges his assumptions. Though he has great wealth, Jesus tells him he lacks what is most important. Though he believes he is an upright man, Jesus shows him that he falls short. These are difficult conversations, but in love, Jesus speaks the truth. These small moments of speaking the truth in love can be incredibly powerful in the lives of God's people. I'll never forget the time a Christian coach challenged me to be more authentic with others. At the time, I was not really following Christ and just kind of pretending and struggling deeply with sin. And he knew this and in love, he told me I needed to be honest and real with others. It was exactly what I needed to hear. He spoke the truth in love and God used that moment literally to change the direction of my life. Friends, God could use small moments when we speak the truth in love to have a big impact. Are there ways God might want to use you this week to speak the truth in love? Maybe there's a situation, a person, or an opportunity you've been avoiding. 
Though the conversation may be difficult, it could be an opportunity to help others find the true contentment that we have described today. As we close, let's return briefly to our passage, the rich young ruler in his failed quest for treasure. In the end, we don't know what happened to this man. Some have speculated that he may have become a follower of Jesus, and accounts from church history suggest this is possible, though we do not know for sure. What we do know is that this wasn't the end of his story. These moments with Jesus left a powerful imprint on his heart. Did he reflect often on this encounter with Jesus? Did he reach another moment where he decided to give Jesus the devotion of his heart? We are left simply to wrestle with these questions for ourselves. Have we given Jesus the ultimate devotion of our hearts? Have we trusted in Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on our behalf? We find true contentment and ultimate devotion to Jesus and through Jesus' ultimate devotion to us. This is good news. It's wonderful news for weary hearts constantly searching for treasure. Friends, Jesus looks deeply and intently at our hearts. He sees our past, our secrets, all our sins, and still he loves us enough to die for us. We could meet his loving gaze with confidence and joy, knowing that we are forgiven and loved. He is our treasure and we are his. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the way that you love us. So often we struggle to live fully devoted to you, and yet you are steadfastly devoted to us. Help us to live for you this week, we pray. Amen. Friends, let's close this service with celebrating the good news of this passage. Jesus is calling us to make him the great treasure of our hearts. All of our sin has been paid for on the cross, and it's now dead and gone. Hallelujah. Let's celebrate this good news together.